Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled RCC Treatment Strategies in a Poor Risk Patient is accredited by Penn State College of Medicine and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by independent medical education grants from Exelixis Incorporated and Merck and Company Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, Please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'd like to welcome our participants to this CME activity. Uh, my name is Jay Raman. I'm professor of urology at the Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Obers Aiken. I'm a radiologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. My name's Robert Mozer, uh, and I'm a, uh, a medical oncologist uh, and attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I'm Elizabeth Klimak. I'm a professor of hematology oncology um, in the division of GU Medical Oncology at the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. Uh, this CME activity is supported by educational grants from Merck and Exelixis. And uh, I'd like to just take you through briefly this virtual tumor board activity. We're going to start with a presentation and discussion of a clear cell renal cell carcinoma patient case and really highlight for you some treatment strategies, uh, the evidence underlying these treatment selection options, uh, certainly clinical considerations regarding patient comorbidities, adverse event profiles, and side effects, and certainly the role and the importance of the patient in a shared decision-making uh, model as we manage these uh, challenging cases. I'd like to turn this over to Dr. Mozart to start by taking us through uh, this case. Uh, thanks very much. So this is a, a 46-year-old male that had a history of hypercholesterolemia and type 2 diabetes. He presented with lower right chest pain, and an X-ray was performed that showed a right anterior chest wall lesion. The initial CT scans showed a five centimeter lytic lesion with a fracture involving the right anterior fourth rib and small bilateral pulmonary nodules. He had a CT guided biopsy of a lesion that was consistent with metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma. He was deemed poor risk by the IMDC risk score and subsequently had CT scans, which revealed additional findings. Dr. Aiken will present these findings. Thank you for the case presentation. Here we see contrast enhanced uh, CT scans of representative lesions. On the first image, the dominant lesion is in the right uh, fourth rib. As you can see, there is a irregular fracture line. In addition to that, if you notice carefully, Along the pleural surface, there is soft tissue thickening, representing that this is a pathological uh, uh, fracture uh, caused by a metastatic lesion. In addition, uh, circle with the blue line, there is a right axillary lymphadenopathy that's very hypervascular, again, consistent with a metastatic lesion. In the second image, we see a circle with orange, a Right kidney mass, again, very vascular, consistent with clear cell, uh, renal cell carcinoma. The patient's additional uh, images uh, showed uh, other findings. For example, in the first image, we see a hypervascular lesion in the liver. 
And in the second image, uh, we see another hypervascular lesion in the pancreatic head. These lesions are also uh, very suspicious for clear cell RCC metastases. Dr. Raman? So I think as Dr. Aiken highlighted, uh, we have a patient who has uh, a relatively smaller right renal mass, but clear biopsy-proven evidence of metastasis and, and really multifocal metastasis, both visceral as well as involving the thoracic cavity. I think when we look at these cases, historically, some of the dogma was uh, approaching upfront with surgery to theoretically debulk the tumor and thereafter treating with systemic uh, agents. And I think over time, um, that has been perhaps uh, debunked, perhaps in these specific cases. And, and I, I would cite you the Carmina trial as evidence whereby surgery up front perhaps is not the ideal direction for such a patient. So to, to briefly go over the Carmina trial, this was a phase three trial in patients with metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma with intermediate or poor risk. And so our patient would theoretically fall into the cohort of analysis here. Patients in this trial were randomized. They were randomized either the nephrectomy with sunitinib or sunitinib alone. And the primary endpoint was overall survival with secondary endpoints, including progression-free survival, objective response on imaging, as well as clinical benefit. The take-home message for Carmina was that sunitinib was non-inferior to nephrectomy with sunitinib in the overall survival. And more importantly, when you looked at these two groups, uh, the sunitinib cohort had a longer median overall survival, both in the overall group, as well as the different subgroups of intermediate and high risk, a longer median progression-free survival, and more patients with clinical benefit. So if we take those findings back to this case, and we look at the NCCN guidelines for the management of stage four renal cell carcinoma, Clearly, we have, as shown on the top portion of this diagram, a patient with a potentially surgically resectable tumor. They have had sampling showing that this is clear cell histology from the rib lesion. And although cytoreductive nephrectomy would be technically possible, I believe that systemic therapy from some of these trials clearly is the preferred option in those patients who have poor risk features. So I'd like to turn this over to Dr. Mozer as well as Dr. Plemak, to take us a little bit more through the therapeutic options. So this is a patient that has a, is poor risk by our, uh, our risk model and has fairly widespread disease with a, with a relatively small renal primary. Um, the treatment for uh, RCC historically would have been to do a cytoreductive nephrectomy on this patient and treat with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, such as uh, sinitinib or pizopidib or even temsorolimus. Uh, but with the advent of immunotherapy, uh, that paradigm has, has changed. Uh, the Carmina trial spoke to the fact that patients need to be carefully selected for cytoreductive nephrectomy. And so this patient... Uh, would not be uh, a good candidate for a cytoreductive nephrectomy in view of the a widespread metastatic disease and the poor risk status. There has been um, a number of large randomized phase three trials that have established a new paradigm for treatment for uh, intermediate poor risk and favorable risk uh, clear cell RCC 
And these have been uh, reflected in the uh, in the NCCN uh, recommendations. So I'll jump in and just agree with everything that's been said here. One way to think about situations like this, when patients present de novo with renal mass, their primary place and metastases, is that your goal is long-term survival and disease control. And surgery based on a Carmina trial doesn't sort of move you forward towards that goal in this particular patient. I'm much more worried about the distant metastases, even though everything's small, all the lesions in this patient fortunately are small. Uh, than the renal mass. I think if we were to reframe the case and make it a really large symptomatic renal mass, I imagine we'd all be having a different discussion. Um, but for this patient, I agree systemic therapy upfront makes sense. And I would echo Dr. Mozart's sentiment that we've moved beyond single agent VEGF TKI uh, to really NCCN guidelines that outline combination strategies. So for poor and intermediate risk, there are four with category one evidence, three are VEGF TKI immunotherapy combinations, and the other being ipilimumab and nivolumab, a pure immunotherapy combination. And so, you know, we have sort of a wealth of level one evidence, but that probably makes it confusing for the user of these guidelines who has four to pick from. Um, and maybe Dr. Moser and I can sort of outline how we think about these four options and what we're choosing for patients currently. So I'll turn it back to Dr. Moser and then I can comment. So the um, I look at it kind of as an IO IO or a TKI IO combination, and the, the you know the IO IO combination is uh, nivolumab plus ipilimumab, which was the which was the first of the uh, IO combinations to reach its primary endpoint of overall survival in the intermediate and poor risk patients, and it's the regimen that we have the longest data on, um, and so with that data we really have seen long-term benefit for a subset of our patients with uh, durable responses, uh, maintaining progression-free survival and maintaining overall survival with long-term follow-up. Now the minimum follow-up of 42 months. Um, so that was really the first combination that came into play and uh, established itself as a, a standard of care. The, uh, the, the TKI-IO combinations are all comprised of uh, very active tyrosine kinase inhibitors, cabozantinib given with nivolumab, uh, axitinib given with pembrolizumab, or me more recently, levatinib plus pembrolizumab. These are all very active combinations. They have high response rates, pretty much regardless of tumor characteristics. And they result in, uh, a, pretty sure, a response in all patients. So I... From my own standpoint, um, uh, most patients with intermediate or poor risk disease, I would favor ipinevo because of the long-term benefit and uh, the quality of life that I've seen in patients with long-time treatment. But there is certainly a role for TKI-IO combinations in patients who you really need a response quickly because they're going to run into trouble clinically or in a favorable risk group, which we can discuss uh, later on. And I think the data for these is evolving in terms of the long-term benefit. And maybe over time that they establish the same sort of durable responses. Uh, Dr. Plimick has been key in uh, presenting the executive pembrolizumab long-term benefit and, uh, in that study. And, and uh, I'd like to hear what she has to uh, say about uh, these treatment options as well. Sure, so I guess it's a little bit of a counterpoint, which is a good discussion. So in looking at all the data from the phase three trials just mentioned, all of which of course are the guidelines for level one evidence, 
Um, from what I see, the long-term landmark overall survival benchmarks are hit with all the trials. So we're seeing 71% two-year OS in IFI and Mevo. We're seeing 79% in Len Pembro. We're not seeing really any dip in the curve with the VEGFIO combinations. So I guess a couple of things. I'm optimistic that the VEGFIO combinations will yield the same durable long-term benefit. Um, I would say there's no evidence to date that they don't. Um, and I would lean on some of the earlier trials, the phase one Axi-Pembro study that we participated in, um, which has really excellent long-term survival, uh, now with some flawed follow-up in terms of study design, um, but over time, most patients in our clinics still alive and well, many off therapy. So yes, we all have these patients on Ipinevo coming to our clinics, reminding us of the success of those regimens. I think once our clinics get populated with the VEGFIO successes, maybe that anecdotal memory will change <laughs> so that we favor those as well. But one of the reasons I really like, for instance, Len Pembro, which is my current go-to in this situation, is that we don't let patients progress on this, right? So the rate of primary progression uh, with Len Pembro is really low, like five or 6% compared to about 17% with Ipi and Nevo. So when we're treating the whole population of patients, we're looking for those early benefits as well. Same with response rate. We get a response rate of 39% with Ipi and Nevo, and that's 71% with Len Pembro. So I would argue, yes, some patients need a response because of an impending problem, but even this patient that we just discussed with multiple small metastases, I'd love to see the rib met shrink, and I would hate to see progression in these areas that could cause symptoms for this patient. So I have really sort of sunsetted Ipi and Nevo, even in this um, you know, intermediate porous population in favor of the VEGFIO combination. I'll leave it at that. We can talk about safety, Bob. So these, these regimens have different distinct safety profiles. Uh, the IOIO and the IOTKI uh, both have their, uh, their own kind of class of side effects that we see. Um, with with Ipinevo, the side effects that we see are, are really restricted to immune-related side effects. Uh, and they are, you know, the most common ones that we see are skin rash, uh, hepatitis or, uh, or uh, colitis in a small population of patients. And they are generally treated with, um, with uh, steroids when the uh, adverse event is moderately severe. The adverse events with Ipinevo seem to come earlier on. Uh, in my experience, more with the, uh, when the Ipi is given with the Inevo. And I think that Ipi is a strong contributor to the immune-related adverse events. When patients are treated uh, with the nivolumab, so-called maintenance, then I, you know, I found the treatment to be very well uh, tolerated. Um, I'll let Betsy talk a little bit about the uh, TKI-IO combinations and the profile in these regimens. Sure. So what's interesting about the way we measure adverse events in clinical trials is, is that it's incidence-based. So we don't have any tools that really measure chronicity of adverse events. Um, which is really an issue when we're talking about VEGF TKIs and even immunotherapy, which can lead to sort of chronic arthralgias or chronic issues um, related to the immune-mediated adverse event. So the, the issue we run into the, the, the most with patients on VEGF IO combinations is how to decide which of the drugs is responsible so that we can safely continue the other one 
um, even if we have to stop one of the combinations. And generally, the recommendation for that is you stop both agents, um, especially in the um, if you're using Xitinib as the TKI, that has a very short half-life. So just holding if the issue resolves in 24 to 48 hours, we can pretty safely attribute it to the Xitinib. Immunotherapy complications don't resolve by holding the drug and they require close monitoring, typically steroids, either oral or IV and sometimes additional um, immune modulating agents. So I, I think, you know, when we look at incidence of toxicity, sure, we can look at those numbers and compare, they look pretty similar. Um, but in my experience, damping down the incidence of immune-mediated toxicity that requires steroids, that rate was about 30% in ipi and nevo. It's about half that in the VEGF-IO combinations, generally speaking. Um, I find the chronic VEGF toxicity is much easier to manage. We have experience with them. We can dose modulate, build in treatment breaks, alternate the um, VEGF that we're using. Um, and so I just find it a little easier to manage with the VEGF-IO combinations. Um, Bob, I don't know if that's your experience as well. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, again, it's, a, it's an area where it's a little controversial. It's not because, I, you know, I, uh, I agree to a certain extent, although with drugs like Exitinib on long-term therapy uh, or Cabozantinib, but particularly Exitinib, patients seem to exhibit diarrhea and, um, you know, result in frequent treatment breaks. So, I, I mean, I think it's a different toxicity profile with TKIIO, it's a little more chronic. That toxicity seems to be a little bit at the later on in treatment that, uh, yeah, although there's some acute toxicities, where with the epinevo, it's more kind of upfront uh, with these more unusual toxicities that may be a little bit more of a challenge to, uh, to, um, to manage. You know, the, the different toxicity profiles, but, but fortunately, I mean, the efficacy for either approach, uh, and I agree, the Len Pembro data was really outstanding in terms of the response rate and progression-free survival. Um, and I, and I, I think that in either case, regardless of what direction one takes, the, the toxicity is manageable and the efficacy really uh, it, it speaks well for either approach with these patients. Really dramatic improvements in outcome with IO combination, either IO-IO or IO-TKI. I, I agree. And I think, um, aren't we lucky to have these options and be having these conversations with so many active agents? Um, I think we can think about how we talk to patients about these choices since we do have choices and how we use shared decision-making, what patient characteristics we sort of bring to bear when we're making some of these decisions. Um, again, I, I sort of made a bold statement that I lean towards Len Pembro in general, off-study for patients in the front line. Um, but there are certain nuances, and obviously every patient um, has brings a different perspective of their own and their own sort of medical issues. So, Bob, how do you talk it through this with patients, and what issues um, are most important for you in these selection situations? So for the most part, for the, uh, and we'll speak to the favorable risk patients later, but for the intermediate and poor risk patient, if it, you know, I, I, I discussed both options and I, um, you know, Len Pembro and Epinevo, because I don't think that kind of one size fits all. And I think different patients may have preference for one versus another. Um, and again, if it looks like a patient is going to run into trouble, then I definitely favor the Len Pembro because of the high response rate. 
But for other intermediate or porous patients, I do think over long term uh, with the, the evidence that we have and with the quality of life I've seen for most patients on, um, on IO therapy that I, I favor Ipinevo. Um, I do think that uh, part of the choice depends on the, you know, the, the physician's comfort in giving uh, a regimen. So um, to, to your point, I think that many oncologists are comfortable giving TKIs because they've given TKIs for years. And in terms of uh, managing side effects, TKIs may be uh, more familiar with management. Um, for others who have given a lot of Ipinevo, like, like myself, I'm very comfortable with managing these immune-related side effects. So I think you know part of it is a patient preference and also physician's comfort uh, in terms of delivering uh, therapy and managing toxicity, uh, as well as the disease characteristics. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think in general, you know, intermediate and porous patients generally do have comorbidities in the trials. They uh, generally, you know, each patient came with their own issues and yet across the board, we see benefit with the trials we've just discussed. So there's no um, other than sort of red flags for immunotherapy that would give us pause in using it at all. Um, there aren't real patient considerations that, that would make me decide between the different agents. But one nuance I would add is that Exitinib is a really easy to dose titrate TPI. It also has the shortest half-life. So if you run into trouble, you can stop it and it wears off. Um, Lenvatinib, which in combination with pembrolizumab has the arguably somewhat better efficacy, especially in the upfront endpoints, um, is a little bit harder to dose titrate given the strength that comes in and also has a longer half-life, so wears off slower. So I think for someone who I'm really ginger about starting VEGF therapy, um, I might favor an exitinib combination. So I'd like to pass this over to Dr. Raman and Dr. Aiken for their uh, insights into the case. And uh, um, Dr. Raymond? Yeah, I, th I think as a urologist, you know, where, did, where does this patient maybe circle back? So you have a young patient. Clearly, we've talked about the importance of systemic therapy, and both of you have highlighted very well the, the, the different regimens and the decision-making. And so in many cases, where do we see these patients come back? Well, they're young. Uh, they've hopefully had a favorable response in their metastatic sites of disease. And the question that arises is what to do with the primary lesion. And, you know, I, I would largely say that uh, I think the role of surgery still remains fairly limited here. Uh, I think as Dr. Plimak highlighted, sure, if you have a patient with a bulky renal mass, perhaps one who is symptomatic, perhaps one who has hematuria, then I think the indications for surgery are for symptom control. I think for any reason, if you have a patient who's coming off of systemic therapy or somebody who's demonstrated growth of the primary lesion while on systemic therapy, despite having metastatic sites that have stabilized, another consideration for uh, a treatment option at a local setting, whether that's surgery or uh, image-guided ablation. And, and the final point would be, in these cases, we do like to think about the potential, if at all possible, for a partial versus radical nephrectomy, just to render them with the most amount of renal reserve uh, for subsequent treatments that may occur down the line or other comorbid conditions that may arise. But I would say the role of surgery, both up front, but even in an interval setting, is really for fairly select cases and unique scenarios. Dr. Aiken? 
Um, thank you. Um, so the imaging will be uh, again important in the follow-up of these patients um, during the course of treatment. As we see in this case, there are some lesions uh, that are clearly metastatic, which could be chosen as target lesions for monitoring the treatment. However, uh, again, as we see in this case, there are some smaller lesions, which could be also, we should be also closely followed because progression can occur on those subtle lesions as well. And the choice of imaging really depends on the patient. Uh, CT is usually sufficient for most patients, but smaller lesions such as a liver lesion for better characterization, depending on the case, other imaging modalities such as MI uh, could add to clinical assessment if needed. Um, other than that, uh, I think uh, the imaging follow-up is mostly very straightforward for these patients. All right. In terms of, uh, so for, you know, final kind of thoughts on the case, um, it sounds like the consensus would be to defer a cytoreductive nephrectomy and start therapy with uh, an IO combination, uh, either uh, ipinevo or lymvatinib pembrolizumab, uh, as uh, Dr. Plimick uh, spoke to. Um, and I think that it's going to be an individual choice. Either one is, a, is an excellent option with the possibility of a, you know, deferred cytoreductive nephrectomy at some point if the patient has a, uh, as an excellent response. And I would just add also the possibility of discontinuation of treatment if the patient has an excellent response. I think in the IPI-NEVO trial, NEVO maintenance continued indefinitely until there's a reason to stop it. Um, but in the VEGF-IO trials, IO, at least with the PEMBRO studies, ends at two years. Um, and many of us feel comfortable pausing the uh, VEGF TKI at that time as well. Um, and we're populating our clinics with success stories who have long-term treatment-free survival and all, from all these groups of patients. So look forward to a time when we can treat patients for a finite period of time and then have them maintain durable disease control off therapy. Great. Well, I'd really like to thank all of our panel members uh, today and, and certainly uh, to thank our attendees and our learners for joining us. And I'd like to remind our attendees to please complete the post-test uh, as well as the evaluation to receive CME credit for this activity. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is accredited by Penn State College of Medicine and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by independent medical education grants from Exelixis Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.